Hello and welcome to The Nature Podcast, and this the final one of 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. And together with my special studio guests, we're here to pay our respects to 2013 and pay tribute to the highlights. This was the year that this event took place. That would be the equivalent of sort of a, a mid-sized nuclear weapon, half a megaton, uh, of TNT equivalent release. And this was published. It's been described as the book of woe. Any idea what those quizzy snippets were? Well, you'll have to wait for us to tell you the answers upside down on page 58 of this podcast. Here to help digest the science highlights of the year is someone whose dulcet tones listeners will know well, nature reporter Richard Van Norden. Richard, are you ready to wrap up the whole of 2013 in about 20 minutes? Absolutely. And sitting awkwardly close to Richard is the creator of the Bugle podcast, which digests the world's news and makes it funnier and bitier than it was the first time round. It's Professor Emeritus Andy Zaltzman. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Andy. Hello. I've never been described as a Professor Emeritus before. Well, my, my sincere apologies and congratulations. Right. On my promotion. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Gratefully accepted. (laughs) Now, to introduce you properly, Andy, here's a little taste of The Bugle, where you're talking about the anniversary of Watson and Crick's DNA paper in April this year. It's the uh, 26th of April, 25th of April. Uh, Yesterday, of course, was the um, 60th anniversary of Crick and Watson publishing their smash hit research article uh, describing their discovery of the classic double helix structure of DNA that we've all come to know, love and rely on so much. And this somewhat distracted attention from from other research papers published in the scientific world the very same week back in 1953, including Professor Eric Frange's Wasp Swallowing in Esophageal Pain, a Causal Study, Dr Hornelian Lapat's Investigations into the Ballistics of Seedless Grapes from the International Journal of Food Fighting Science, and D.L. Harwati and M. Prince McGonagall's Studies in the Symbiosis and Biomechanics of Vocal Inflection and the Facial Sneer, which remains one of the <laughs> most influential papers in the science of sarcasm to this day. It's a really interesting read. <laughs> now, for people who are listening to the Nature Podcast but aren't yet Bugle converts, how would you describe the Bugle? The Bugle, well, it's, uh, well, as you described, it's uh, a weekly news comedy show mixing, I guess, satire with lies and occasional bouts of puns. So, And it's me and John Oliver, who uh, your listeners may know from the Daily Show in the, in the States. And um, how would you describe it in three words? In three words, unremittingly, persistently hilarious. <laughs> and do you have a lot of listeners? <laughs> uh, we have, yeah, we have quite a few dotted all around the world. So, Yeah, about Good. seven billion, I think, around about the six to seven billion mark. That's impressive. That's yeah. that's a, approximately the world's population yeah, right well, now. I mean, they can all, through the internet now, you just assume that they all get, get hold of it somehow, even if it doesn't show up on the actual download figures. So, Richard, I think we're doing something wrong with our stats yeah. here. I don't think You've got to work uh, a stat. I always say statistics are like a ventriloquist dummy, that if you shove your hand far enough up, then you can make them say whatever you want. <laughs> Only children and idiots will take any notice, but that's that's not the point. You've got to work the stat. You as a scientist should know that. I should, I should, yeah. and I should be working them better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Richard Van Norden, King, one of the kings of nature stats, is, is quietly horrified, I think, at this... Right. Um, I can't quite believe what I'm hearing, to right. be honest. I mean, <laughs> statistics are like a religion here in nature. Really? Yeah. What, mostly lies? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, I can see it's going to be a pleasure to have you here, Andy, oh. <laughs> um, to help us lie about science more effectively um, and process a little bit of, of what actually happened in 2013 as well as what might not have done. Um, have, have you always been a, a science fan? No, um, <laughs> not really. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I, I sort of did it at school and then 
I had um, maybe a couple of science teachers that I didn't fully see eye to eye with, and me and science have had a pretty fractious relationship, I guess. I don't trust it. Um, I think it's up to no good, basically. I think, in fact, science has had its chance, and we should probably move on and find other stuff to replace it. We didn't I know, get probably, that memo. That's probably did we? not the right show to say that on. I'm, in, I'm outnumbered. But, it, yes. Yeah. Difficult territory for this view. Right. You're ganging up on me with your science. <laughs> you didn't have then a favourite science experiment at school, or you don't have a favourite bacteria or what? Not, not a massive fan of bacteria. Uh, you know, I, I guess you've got to have some, haven't you? You can't live with them, can't live without them. One of those kind of things, isn't it? bacteria. I remember actually I did a project in physics at schools in which I had to um, scientifically discover the freezing point of water, which, as far as I was concerned, was fairly universally recognised anyway. It felt like a futile waste of time and equipment. You'd rather ascertain, you know, the exact... I I wanted to do something that no one had ever done before. I mean, what is the point of discovering the freezing point of water? We knew that. That was discovered in, what, 1983 or something? I don't know. (laughs) Well, of course, the Russians suppressed it for years. They had the info back in the 30s, but didn't want to let it out because that uh, helped them win the war because it was so cold in Russia that, you know, the Germans didn't know when the water was going to freeze and the Russians did. Bingo. I'm 103% <coughs> convinced with what you've just said. Um, and well, this might be a good time to um, thank you again both for joining us. Welcome to The Nature Podcast. Well, hello. Hello, hello Nature. Now, 2013 has been a busy old year for scientists who've been occupied with battling the newest flu strain, H7N9, growing bodily organs in the lab and watching the Voyager spacecraft almost definitely leave the solar system. But it's also, and a hat tip to the Bugle podcast format here, the anniversary of several other things. Coincidentally, it's 22,209 days, or 60.85 years, since Watson and Crick told their mates in a pub they had found the secret of life. Uh, it's five months, two days, and several cesium atom vibrations since scientists unveiled an atomic clock that could redefine time. Oh, do they need to do that? Doesn't time working already? Leave time alone. I have a watch. I don't need you people messing around with it. Today it's actually 91 years and a month, exactly, since Tutankhamun's tomb was raided by Lara Croft, of course. <laughs> uh, discovered by Howard Carter. Right. Had a horn on the door. Have the toot and come in. <laughs> we have got some puns going, ladies and gentlemen. We knew it would happen at some point. Later in the show, in preparation for the festive season, we'll be indulging in some food of the fermented variety as Ewan Calloway visits a pickle factory and sends a famous food writer his home brew. That's all to find out how fermentation is key to many food flavours that you'll encounter whilst stuffing your face over the holidays. And in fact, uh, gents, do help yourself to some of these samples. Uh, Ewan brought back approximately four buckets um, of pickles, and we haven't put them on plates, but there's a fork available there. This one says kimchi. Well, this kimchi is typically disgusting. (laughs) Excellent example. Dive in, Rich. That's really potent. Could be combat beetroot, this that is aggressive beetroot. We'll be back to hear more about the pickles later. Many of you might be off to see family for the festive season, and we've got some evolutionary insights on the bigger human family tree when geneticist David Reich calls into the studio to wrap up his latest research on Neanderthals and other hominins hot off the presses this week. Hominin is actually my favourite science word. I don't know if you guys have one. And what, how is that different from a hominid? Um, well, there's a very big controversy over that, and I think right. scientists have now ditched the D in, in favour of the N because they were right. synonyms. Right. And how much research funding went into that to change the D to an N? My tax money could be better spent on getting George Osborne a new pair of leggings or something. Uh, favourite science words, anyone? Well, I, I've always liked orbital, planetary orbitals, 
molecular orbitals in chemistry, I think it's a very um, multicultural, well-used word in science, orbital. Nice and general. Mm. I was like superconductor. Sounded like it was, you know some amazing orchestra was going to burst out of a, a circuit or something. <laughs> <laughs> some little miniature Herbert von Karajan was going to come scuttling out. I think we've just uh, awarded the Imagination Prize, uh, <laughs> and it's not gone to hominin or to orbital. So by process of elimination, congratulations, <laughs> Professor Thanks. Emeritus Saltzman. Um, right, onwards to the hardest-hitting science that happened in 2013. Finally, we've got there. Firstly, Obama wants us to approach science's final frontier. But, Richard, this isn't our space story yet, is it? No, Gary, this is about the brain. Um, back in April, Obama announced uh, the moonshot for neuroscience it was going to be uh, mapping the entire brain. And then scientists said, well, hang on a minute. We can't really get in there and map every neuron. This is ridiculous. And it's degenerated into an approach where they're just trying to rather loosely get as much funding as possible to um, map neurons um, and monitor them and simulate them. Contrast that to the European effort where there is a billion euro project that was announced this year to essentially simulate the brain in a supercomputer in the next decade, um, which is a very ambitious goal. But it's got lots of good milestones. It looks very promising. And, you know, whether or not these projects come to pass, clearly there's been a lot of excitement about the brain this year. This year really has been the year of the brain in science. I'm, I'm not at all convinced by this, uh, this brain. Me. I mean, what, what, they're doing what with, a, with a, some supercomputer and like, creating an artificial computer brain? Right, yeah, the, the, the idea. That is the kind of thing that happens at the beginning of disaster movies. You know, if someone thinks, oh, this is the, nothing, what could possibly go wrong with this? Within five years, you've got these computers running the world and everyone's living, living up trees, being shot at by these escape robots. Andy, I mean, what would you like to find out about your brain if you were given $100 million, as Obama has given the scientists? I want to know why it is that I can remember sporting statistics from the early 80s, but I have to actively think what my children's birthdays are. Mm. Well, my, my guess would be uh, that you are better at remembering statistics when there's more emotion Invoked with them. <laughs> Considering that we've only just met, you have read me like a book. Do you think that you're, you'll be donating your, your brain with all its cricket scores from the 80s and all the, the wisdom files oh. uh, to science? Yeah, not imminently, but eventually, yeah. Um, <laughs> it would be lovely if it, if, it went, if it went to some good in death, if, even if all it's done in life is to tell lies and make up bullshit, so... Now, one, uh, it's a good connection that you've made there because uh, there was a death in science this year um, and that was the passing of Kepler, the space telescope, which is some really rather useful stuff in its life. Richard, uh, what were Kepler's biggest achievements? Mm, well, we sent Kepler up in 2009 to look for planets outside of our solar system and it's done brilliantly well. It's found over 3,000, maybe 3,500 possible candidates. 1,000 planets outside our solar system now confirmed but sadly, this year, it turns out that Kepler depends on gyroscopes to keep it pointing the same way, because it detects planets by looking at a star very, very closely and watching for the dip in light as the planet goes past the star, then it knows it's got one. And unfortunately, the gyroscopes failed this year. The ball bearings were rather weak or something, a bit of an oversight, perhaps. And as a result, the spacecraft is kind of spinning around a bit and its thrusters can keep it going, but it's just not got the precision to look for any more planets. So that's that. But it's, it's done a fantastic job. Uh, it's got past its original three-year mission timescale. And um, no doubt we'll be looking at all these planets. Unfortunately, it kind of stopped just before we got to the really interesting planets that were kind of Earth-sized and around their stars at the same distance than Earth is. But maybe in the next few years, you know, we'll see some more. And basically what it's told us is there's an awful lot more planets out there than we could ever have imagined. 
Now, one thing it doesn't do is name these planets for us. They are given all kinds of garbled names that have letters and numbers attached to them, and they're not very evocative. Um, Why aren't they a bit better? Well, basically, the names are all letters and numbers, and the naming of planets is controlled by the International Astronomical Union, which is like a little uh, conservative think tank that um, has an iron fist over what planets are called. And um, this year, a space education company called Uwingu in Colorado launched a public contest asking for contributions to what it called a a baby book of names that astronomers could draw on for planets. The winner, quite unbelievably perhaps, was Albertus Alauda, which was a Latinized version of the name of the nominator's late grandfather. (laughs) But but, uh, the IAE wasn't taking this lying down. In April, it issued a press release called Can One Buy the Right to Name a Planet? Because Uwingo was asking for 99 cents to vote in this contest. And they've now put out guidelines that you can't take money for naming planet contests. All of these things are voluntary anyway, and the IAU has a final decree. And there's some rules on the names you can suggest. No pet names. All names must be 16 characters or less in length, pronounceable in as many languages as possible, non-offensive in any language or culture. Like racehorses. Well, yeah, no names of individuals, places or events, and no political or military activities, which has led some to suggest that we need to rename Mars as the god of war. <laughs> yeah. What, what would you um, what would you call a planet, Andy, if you were given one for Christmas, perhaps? Uh, whoa. Given these That's guidelines a, that we now have that are pretty oh, stringent. Yeah, that does narrow it down, because obviously the temptation is to call it something incredibly infantile and childish, like Starlin's testicle or something. <laughs> and, um, I mean, that would certainly make astronomy a lot more interesting, wouldn't it? Oh, I think look, it would I make can, it memorable. I can see Starlin's nutsack from here. Oh, look, I'm just over there. If you look carefully, that's Hitler's wang. Uh, well, it's it's really a shame I'm, that Kepler is passed. I'm 39 and a father of two. But what are we going to do with them when we've named them? How far away are these planets? Pretty when far. When am I going to get to go to them? Never. Well, the, ne- the nearest star's, what, four year light years away, yeah. and the nearest planet's there, and then it's outwards from there on in. Yeah. So, so I mean, four, four light, light years. Yeah. I've got a, um, a Citroen Picasso. Um... Well, that's that's a long journey, isn't it? I mean, these planets are of no practical use to me, are they? I don't care what they're called. Give me a planet that I can visit, and you'll have my full undivided attention. Let's talk about... Snooping on other people's planets. Who knows what those people are doing? Leave them alone. Haven't they already given them names, anyway? Wouldn't it be polite just to hold fire and wait until we find out what they're actually called? What What is the likelihood of there being life on these planets? Pretty high? Well, we haven't actually found any uh, that are in the Goldilocks zone. They call it the Goldilocks zone right. if it's not too hot, not too cold, not too wet, not too dry, right. just right. Okay. So far, um, none. Right. So, um, but, you know, we're bound to find some soon. So there we are with some key happenings in 2013. Soon we'll be looking at some things that didn't happen in 2013. It doesn't sound like news, but it will do when we get there. Trust me. First, though, Ewan Calloway has been anaerobically producing this package about fermentation. Humans have been fermenting foods for thousands of years, and from beer and wine to cheese and vinegar, we encounter fermented foods in nearly everything we eat. In this week's Nature, we've got an essay about fermentation in foods. We'll be hearing from the author soon, but first... I've come to a yard full of shipping containers in East London to meet pickler Nick Vadas. Hello? Oh, hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come on in. Thank you. You can smell the, I don't know, pickles, kimchi. Well, you should see when I open it first thing in the morning, it's, uh, you, you can't mistake that fermented smell. There are vats all over the place. This one says dill broccoli. Um, I see some, I see some tomatoes. Mm. Why don't you introduce yourself? 
Okay, so my name is Nick Vadaz, and I'm founder of Vadaz Deli. This is where I ferment my sauerkraut. You want to talk us through how you would go about making a sauerkraut? I see we've got some uh, yeah a giant cabbage there that's been we've severed. Got some, we've got some cabbage here. You know, if I was to sum up what I love about sauerkraut is it's transforming you know humble cabbage into um, something amazing, something tangy, tasty. And also the value added, you know, not just the taste and flavor, which is why I came, why I've always loved it, but the, um, the benefit, the health benefits, the vitamin C, the minerals, and of course, the good bacteria. Then this would normally would go into one of my big fermenting barrels. And these are 60 liter barrels. And then I, I measure out my salt and my spices. So once the salt hits the cabbage, um, it starts to draw the sugars and the, well, the liquid out of the cabbage, including the sugars. And then that will then in turn create a wonderful brine within which the lactic acid will do its job and the bacteria can thrive. Now I'm just moving this out of here. So this is now, this is the 2nd of December. And this, I'm going to let you, if you want to taste. Yeah, I get to taste course. it. Well, you can taste the brine. Yeah. And a lot of people work, my family come from, they, they drink the brine. Do they? As a, as a tonic. All right. Now that's oh, quite fresh. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of dill pickles. So you smell it's that dill, a little vinegar. Exactly what it is. It's a garlic dill sauerkraut. Woo. That's good, actually. That's a little salty. Uh, the garlic really comes through. It's nice and mellow. This, this reminds me of my mom's dill pickles. Is it surprising to you that you can just get these really amazing transformations of foods just by kind of leaving them alone? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. People uh, are really scared of that process. I think a lot of customers come to me at the market and they say, um, yeah, I tried to make sauerkraut, but um, it went funny. Or it, uh, and, uh, yeah, I see, that's what's supposed to happen. You know, it, it's supposed to go funny. It's supposed to go go weird and bubbly and stuff. I know, yeah, but it all had this white film. I said, that's just yeast. You know, it's fine. And so people, you need to, you know, um, not worry about those. But most people, maybe fortunately for me, haven't got the time <laughs> to make it so they can come buy it off me, can't they? That was Nick Vadas. He told me that he thinks of fermentation as a kind of magic. So I asked Harold McGee, the food and science writer and author of an essay on fermentation in this week's Nature, what was really going on. Well, uh, I, I think magic is a good word for it. Uh, what you have are countless, although you know, billions and billions of um, microbes, and they are hard at work living off of the nutrients that are in the foods that he's fermenting, uh, so mostly sugars, and turning those sugars into lactic acid, which helps uh, suppress the growth of microbes that would compete with the uh, fermentation microbes for those sugars. We tend to think of, or at least when a lot of people talk about fermentation, they, think, they tend to think of fermentation as fermentation. But in your nature essay, you really explore the diversity of fermented foods and the processes used to make them. What are, what are some of the more exotic ones? So, for example, there's something called natto, which is uh, fermented 
soybeans, uh, a dish that's made in Japan, and there the microbe is uh, not any of the usual suspects. It's uh, Bacillus subtilis, which grows on the soybeans and actually uh, metabolizes the proteins into amino acids, uh, so it's different from the, the sugar fermentations. And it generates uh, very interesting flavors, which some people love, some people can't stand. And then this wonderful uh, polymer of uh, glutamic acid, which gives a wonderfully stringy, uh, it's hard to describe. It's uh, something where you lift the, the beans up from the bowl with a fork or with chopsticks, and you end up with these uh, strings that go as high as your fork or, or chopsticks do. Are we coming up with new ways of fermenting foods or, or new, new approaches to fermentation? Or are we just practicing things that have been going on even before humans were around? I think we're in an accelerated discovery phase, and that includes uh, applying known fermentation techniques from other parts of the world to more local ingredients, so Asian fermentations applied to European ingredients. Uh, but also people are looking for new microbes that might provide new flavors, new textures that, uh, that haven't been appreciated yet. I've been doing some fermenting of my own, and, and this Christmas I'll be filling stockings with my homemade beer. It's, it's called a Saison, and I've, I've shipped you a sample, Harold, and so I thought you would try the Nature Podcast's first and, and possibly last teletasting. Okay, so here we go. Foam is rising, not not quite to the top. Yeah, and it has a wonderful aroma before I even pour it, but I will pour it now. And boy, that's a powerful, <laughs> powerful carbonation. You get this really amazing variety in flavors from, from different strains of yeast I've learned as a brewer. What causes that? Exactly why they do this um, isn't quite clear, but the yeasts that are used in brewing can make a tremendous range of uh, aroma compounds that can give fruity impressions, spicy impressions, um, uh, medicinal impressions. Um, sometimes they're, they make things smell more like animals than like uh, uh, barley. So uh, it's, it's a, a wonderful kind of uh, transformation. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I really find amazing about, about yeast used in beer. Just, just like you said, this, this great variety that you can get. And I've, this is the first time I've ever made this kind of beer, a saison, using this kind of yeast. So I hope you can have a sip of it. Okay, it's, it's settled. And so I will take a sip right now. Mm. How's that for breakfast? That is uh, quite a start to the day. <laughs> it's delicious. Congratulations. I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. <laughs> and it seems to me especially suitable for the season. To me, it has uh, a lot of kind of Christmas spice uh, aromas, cloves, maybe a little bit of cinnamon. Yeah, it's delicious. And now for those things that didn't happen in 2013. Firstly, for a long couple of weeks, the US government didn't happen. There was a shutdown. Yes, yeah, well, it was, a, it was an absolutely extraordinary story that 
you know, if that shutdown had gone on a week longer, they were going to have to concrete over the Grand Canyon to save money. And they'd already started changing um, Mount Rushmore, basically giving Abraham Lincoln a, a middle finger that he could point towards Washington in disgust at uh, what, the, what his successors were doing to uh, the American nation. What was its scientific knock-on? Did science stop? Well, I mean, essentially anyone who worked for a federal agency had to go home. So uh, anyone who worked, you know, for the FDA doing, I mean, obviously non-essential things like um, monitoring the influenza outbreak or <laughs> checking for food safety, I mean, they were off. Some telescopes had to be shut down because there was no one who could operate them. Some missions to the Antarctic um, had to stop. So a few... <laughs> just left them there. Is that what happened to Shackleton? Just, well, it was just a government shutdown. And someone said, oh, didn't, we, didn't we have a guy out there? Wasn't there some guy with a boat? I think they cleverly never got there in the first place. Right. But, I mean, you've got to think for these poor doctoral students. They've got two or three years to do their PhD, and boom, that's your entire one-year season work over. Yeah. You're not going to be measuring uh, acidification effects on sea urchins for a Absolutely whole Absolutely not. And um, What are those effects? Is that basically the same pickling process that they've done on that beetroot? It looks to me like a, a reasonably good uh, estimation of what a sea urchin might look like if you shredded it and pickled it. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, so the shutdown essentially ruined a lot of scientific work um, and kind of made it clear how much we depend on the government to keep running. Hmm. Um, but it's all right because weather forecasters were judged essential workers, so they kept going. Um, uh, all of the rest of science stopped. Well, another non-event this year, of course, was progress on climate policy. Not very much movement there. And in fact, some regression, I should say. Rich, what, what wasn't happening in the arena of environmental policy? Well, overall, um, environmental policy um, often stands still, but I think this year it went backwards. Um, well, for example, uh, Australia got a new prime minister who decided to scrap their carbon tax and, well, scrap many of their environmental um, policies. Uh, Japan uh, said that because of Fukushima, it couldn't possibly meet its target to, say, cut emissions from 1990. It's going to allow itself to slightly increase emissions from 1990. And Canada pulled out of the UN desertification treaty. It was all really rather gloomy. And the only perhaps note of um, some uh, lightness was that when you actually look at the figures of the CO2 released, it was slightly less of an increase than we might have thought. I think the problem with the environment is a lot of people remain unconvinced about the long-term economic benefits of saving the world because the world is basically a loss-making planet. So, you know, maybe it would, for the shareholders, make more sense if we actually pollute faster to accelerate the end of the end of the earth. Also, the human soul basically is programmed to work to deadlines. The global warming threat is just not pressing enough at the moment. Until we open our curtains in the morning and see a polar bear wrestling a penguin on our front lawn, we're not going to take it seriously. So actually, I'm in favour of everyone doing their bits to increase their carbon emissions, accelerate global warming and make it more of a pressing issue for everyone around the world. Not just the people who happen to live by the sea and in target zones for natural disasters. This needs to affect everyone. Because if it's not affecting people in London and in New York and in, in Berlin, it's, it's not going to get through. So we, we, need, we need massive global economic catastrophes for the good of humanity. What's your uh, current footprint and how are you considering that you might increase it in line with your theory? Um... Well, um, I mean, it's a bit hypocritical. I do, I do do my bit for, for, for the environment. I leave my fridge door open for 20 minutes every day to help counteract global warming. I walk to and from my local petrol station and I carry my fuel home in a special bucket. And we all make sacrifices. Um, so, 
Oh, I think my yeah. Oh, I have two children. That's probably the worst thing you can do, isn't it? For in terms of your carbon footprint, if you create four more carbon footprints, then that's you know that's the Chinese one-child policy is probably the most environmentally friendly policy that's ever been devised. They never get credit for that. They're also burning coal like it is going out of fashion, which because they're burning so much, it is going out of fashion. In order to accelerate this tipping point where humanity finally has to... You know, it's like a snooze alarm, isn't it? Whack the snooze alarm. That's, that's how we've dealt with the environment, traditionally. Snooze, snooze, snooze. Until an iceberg crashes through our window. Or a giraffe. So now there's a giraffe wrestling a polar bear, wrestling a penguin on your lawn, well, and an iceberg is about to it's hit. It's chaos, isn't it? Well, then yeah. people are going to think, I will now make some changes to my life. Well, that was the... Um that was the most unique, I think, it's fair to say, take on the environment I've heard in a long time on the Nature podcast well, or well, elsewhere. Well, here at Nature, I mean, we were all quite um, shocked when uh, the atmospheric carbon in the atmosphere went above 400 ppm. But it sounds like that that news did not reverberate around the world as <laughs> much as we expected. It's almost time now, you'll be pleased to know, to reveal the topics behind those mystery clips at the top of the show. Uh, But first, the latest Neanderthal news. We already know that at one stage in relatively recent history, there was more than one human-like species roaming the planet. These groups probably even interbred. Now the highest quality Neanderthal genome yet reveals even more about our extinct relatives. Geneticist David Reich at Harvard University told me more. In 2008, 10, Svante's group, of which I was a part, published a draft sequence of the Neanderthal genome. But that data set was of very low quality. There were lots of errors and lots of gaps in that sequence. What happened was that Svante's group successfully identified a Neanderthal sample of much higher DNA quality with a much higher proportion of human DNA in the sample, and that could be sequenced to a much higher level. So because we have so many independent reads on what the underlying sequence is, the quality of this genome is about the same quality or even higher than many present-day human genome sequences. And it comes from this cave, and it's a, it just comes from one toe bone. Yeah, it's a little toe bone, maybe an inch long, and it's an amazing cave for preservation of DNA. It's the very same cave that the Denisovan finger bone, uh, an even smaller bone, was found in and that we've also reported a whole genome high-quality sequence from. So even though it's only this one tiny little bone, it gives you a wealth of information about not only this individual, who was a Neanderthal female, a woman, but also the hominin family more, more broadly. Should we talk about the individual first? I mean, what do you know about this Neanderthal woman? So what you can actually see in this Neanderthal woman is that there are large segments of her genetic material where the section of the genome that she got from her mother and the section she got from her father are essentially identical. What that means is that her parents were very close relatives of each other. We can estimate that they were about the level of closeness that you would expect from a mating of half-siblings or an uncle and a niece or a grandfather and a granddaughter. So it was a highly inbred mating that resulted in this Neanderthal woman. Do you think that that was usual for populations of Neanderthals, or was this population very isolated in this Siberian cave region and there was no sort of choice for them? Even if you subtract away the effect of this very extreme recent inbreeding, the individual still has evidence of inbreeding, more inbreeding than any other sample we have data for. So more inbreeding than, for example, the archaic Denisovan individual from another population found in the same cave and from quite a different population of humans and more inbreeding than any human we've ever collected data from. Now, if we move on from the individual herself to 
perhaps the implications of this Neanderthal genome, this high-quality genome, for telling us about our own genome? We've also been able to generate a catalogue of mutations that are unique to present-day humans and not seen in our close archaic relatives who separated from us maybe half a million years ago. And these are mutations that are candidates for conferring uniquely modern human biological function. So it's a very small list, and it's a list that's short enough that one can imagine a systematic genomic study to knock out these mutations and to understand their biological function, to see what they do. The other answer to your question relates to what we can learn about population history, and we think we've learned quite a lot about that, and much of the paper focuses on those issues. So tell me maybe a bit about about the population history then. You're, you're looking at basically what might have happened when the Neanderthals and Denisovans of this particular age, 50,000 years ago, were living around each other, and then since, how they might have merged, I suppose, with human populations. The first thing we've learned is about gene flow between Neanderthals and Denisovans. It's clear that these two populations that lived in the same cave, perhaps at different times or the same times, actually met each other. And the way we know that is that the Denisovan genome, which we published last year and is also a very high quality, contains bits of Neanderthal ancestry that arrived recently in it due to gene flow. There are particular places in the genome of the Denisovan where there's quite a lot of Neanderthal ancestry, for example, in the HLA region of chromosome 6, which is a place important in immune function. So it's tempting to speculate that that might have been useful for the Denisovan population in adapting to immunological challenges. We now know absolutely unambiguously something that was not fully clear before, that there was gene flow from late Neanderthals into present-day non-Africans. Also, we find segments in present-day non-Africans that are related within 100,000 years to the Neanderthal we sequence. So it's unambiguous evidence of close Neanderthal relatedness. In the last paragraph of the paper, you talk about an unknown hominin. There's another hominin group, perhaps, uh, contributing genes to Denisovans. So that's probably the most surprising population history finding of the paper. So we did a series of statistical analyses from a number of different perspectives, and it's very clear that what's actually going on is that Denisova harbors ancestry from an unknown archaic population, one that separated from modern humans and Neanderthals before they separated from each other. We estimate that that population split from the ancestors of Neanderthals and modern humans, with our best guess being about 900,000 to 1.4 million years ago, and that it contributed on the order of 2 to 6% of the ancestry of the Denisovan individual. So I wonder what the situation was there then, because we've got this unknown group that's branched off quite a long time before humans, Neanderthals and Denisovans separate, and then it's breeding with Denisovans. We know that there were humans in Eurasia for at least 1.8 million years, the first Homo erectus material is 1.8 million years old. So there's lots of candidates in the archaeological and paleontological record for who these could have been, Homo erectus or Homo heidelbergensis. And it's very exciting to try to think about what these populations might have been and to see if in the genetic data we can learn something about what they might have been. Andy, what impressions would scientists in the future get of the human race if they sequenced your toe bone? Um, (laughs) uh, I don't know. I've not really thought about my toe bone very much. You know, well, it's just, the same DNA as everywhere granted, else. Oh, is it? Right. No, I think I have different DNA in my arms and my legs, definitely. What gives you that impression? Well, because I'm sort of better at throwing things and kicking things. So um, it's got to be different DNA, isn't it? 
tweet us if you think <laughs> Professor Emeritus Andy Saltzman might be wrong about this at Nature oh, so Podcast. This, these, uh, these Neanderthals. Mm. Basically, are we sure we weren't just testing someone from a Neanderthal royal family? Because that is basically what you described there was was, was Queen Victoria, basically, wasn't it? cousins in breeding and all kind, you know, narrowing of the gene pool. That's a very good point, because how do you know that this wasn't special in some way, that this population was very isolated from all the others um, and maybe didn't really get the chance to meet that many other Neanderthals at that particular time? The other explanation is that, I mean, let's be honest, you look at a Neanderthal, they're not the prettiest, are they? So, you know, if you find a hot Neanderthal, you're going to stick with it, aren't you? So it's understandable that probably the the prettiest Neanderthals just bred with each other. Has science dipped its toe in those controversial waters? I'll be emailing David Wright that's it. We straight did, after this. We did a thing on the, on the Bugle quite early on in the Bugle's illustrious history where we had a hotties from history section where people, uh, which I think began with me lusting over Florence Nightingale. Oh, yeah. And um, and someone sent in um, Lucy, the uh, it Australopithecus afarensis. Or, there, yes, yeah. exactly. And with a huge, kind of 400-word lustful uh, peon to... How hot she was! <laughs> so. Well, she was. She did have in her favour being bipedal, um, but yeah. she was shorter than I am, which is saying something, right. and quite hairy, I think. Right. There's all kinds of niches out there, aren't there? So. I mean, this idea, I think, is is crazy of this of there being lots of human species around, sort of at the same time interacting. Would make a great sitcom, though, wouldn't it? Mm. At home with the Denise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just before we get to that quiz that I keep mentioning, our weekly segment is back. This is on the best science elsewhere. Here are the research highlights read by Andy Zaltzman. Male chameleons change their colours depending on how aggressive they're feeling. A US-based team staged fights between pairs of chameleons and filmed them in HD. Now, they've got to be in HD. You know, you know, the worst thing you'd possibly have is a chameleon fight in standard definition. I mean, this is this is why why science gets a bad name, because we still don't have a cure for malaria, do we? And people are having chameleon fights. Look, let's have a list of priority signs. Chameleons whose stripe brightened the most were more likely to charge at their enemy, and those whose heads changed colour most quickly were more likely to win a fight. Well, you can see how this is going to be. This is going to have some military military input. Now they're going to have tanks that change colour depending on the situation on the battlefield. The two signals will help separate a would-be enemy's motivation from their ability. So that's... I, mean, I imagine there was a hell of a lot of gambling going on in these chameleon fights as well. Were they unregulated? In the lab. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm picturing some kind of unregulated backroom bear pit where they just... Everyone's chucking fivers into the pit and these chameleons are tearing <laughs> strips off each other. I would pay to see that. <laughs> Probably on Sky Sports 4 as we speak. Uh, yeah, and you can read more about the illegal backstreet chameleon fighting ring in uh, biology letters. This one, this came from Geology magazine or journal. What would you call that? Journal, I think. Journal. Let's call it a journal. Hmm. You can't get it in Smiths at Victoria Station. It's, it's not a journal. On sale on the that, is, that is how you define these things. Uh, volcanoes rich in ash often produce lightning when they explode. Now, <laughs> that's. But if, I, if I'm being exploded on by a volcano. I'm not going to be worried about whether or not there's lightning. I'm going to be worried about whether or not there's a volcano. Now a team of researchers have replicated the lightning in a lab. Best place for it. The Germany-based team simulated an eruption by placing ash in a tube. By drastically decompressing the ash, they got it to explode upwards into a tank. Using speedy cameras and high-tech gadgets, they captured the lightning that formed. 
The more fine particles that are spewed out, the more lightning there is. The team think the experiment will speed up the development of systems to monitor lightning and forecast volcanic ash emissions. So that, I mean, that's, that, that, I have no quarrel with that. Um, you know, but um, it does sound like they were just dicking around in the lab making things go bang. But I guess, you know, lots of good things have come from that. I think, I think you just defined science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, now, finally time for the quiz, because who doesn't love a little bit of organised fun? Remember those clips from the top of the show. See if you can identify the story they refer to. Here is the first one. That would be the equivalent of sort of a, a mid-sized nuclear weapon, half a megaton uh, of TNT equivalent release. All right. So what event, uh, Richard, let's start with you. What do you think that uh, clip referred to? Well, I'm almost sure I know what this is. <gasps> Shall I give away the answer? Uh, I think I know what it is. It was the hype for the birth of the royal baby. The hype from that had basically the same devastating effect as a small nuclear weapon. We basically looked like a 1950s Pacific island. Richard? Well, I'm almost sure that was the energy released when the Chelyabinsk meteor came in. Yeah, the explosion in question was the meteor that hit the Russian town of Chelyabinsk in February and was estimated to be as powerful as a mid-sized nuclear weapon. And scientists were able to analyse the trajectory and the speed of the meteor. Well, it did was break some windows, wasn't it? It did. It suggests that we need to get some more explosive nukes. <laughs> I think maybe it was pretty high up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to explode the nukes low down. Ah, oh, right, I see, yeah. right. It broke okay. up quite high up. Right. Yeah. And the analysis, interestingly, that scientists were able to do was because so many people had recorded the event on their car dashboard cameras or CCTV footage of windows exploding. And you can find more details and a lovely video of that event and those dashboard camera clips at youtube.com slash nature video channel. It's definitely come on since uh, the days of Halley's Comet in 1066 when they just luckily someone was doing a little tapestry when it went over. Now it's moved on, we have dashboard cameras. It's all part of the same continuum. There's, that's a scientific word, isn't it? It certainly is. I think I've earned my place on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, on to the second clip. It's been described as the Book of Woe. All right, the Book of Woe. Um, Andy, what story do you uh, think this is? It sounds like a manual on how to stop a horse. The Book of Woe. Right? You're right, that was a key publication in uh, science this year. <laughs> <laughs> You're almost right, because it almost was a publication, but not quite, right. because they didn't stop the horse in time and with tragic yeah. consequences. Any other ideas? To me, it just sounds like... Thatcher's n- autobiography. That- yeah, could be that. I mean, to me, it sounds like nature. People <laughs> read nature and go, whoa. You know, a lot of amazing findings published there this year. Yeah, it's all to do with how woe is spelt and intoned. It's true. Yeah. Would you like me to reveal the woe in question? Yeah, go on then. Um, so the, the woe is in fact sadness. This is the meaning oh. of woe that we want. And the book in question is the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, sometimes called the Bible of Psychiatry. The fifth volume of that was launched in May this year and contained new entries such as internet addiction. I spend too much time checking emails, but I don't know if that's an addiction or just an avoidance of work and a lot of time reading about cricket. I feel like a cricket note is is a good one to end on because yeah. I don't know if listeners will know, but you're you're almost as much a fan of cricket as you are of um, satirical news. <laughs> yes, and science, clearly. <laughs> and science. Well, there's a lot of science in cricket. You know, cricket wouldn't work without gravity. Gravity is science, isn't it? No, there's a lot of science in cricket. What they could do for this current Ashes is work out what would have happened if England hadn't played so appallingly badly, which just seems unfair that England should lose out through a inadequate technology just because they've played really badly. 
I hate to end on this downer. Right, I mean, sorry. have you got any, you know, positive Other cricket stories? Or positive science stories. Well, if you like, yeah. What have you been, right. what have been your favourites from this year? My favourite science stories from, uh, from this year? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's basically witchcraft in a lab coat for me, science. As I think it's probably come across <laughs> this. But you just put loads of fancy words on it instead of cackling like witches and everyone thinks, oh, that's all right, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm on to you guys. I think we've been found out, Richard, which might mean <laughs> that this is a good time to end the witchcraft. I mean, the science, I mean, the show, I'm afraid to say. And all that's left is to thank my wonderful guests, Richard Van Norden from Nature and Andy Zaltzman of The Bugle Podcast. For can, more... I, can I get a lift back on your broomstick after this? <laughs> For more of Richard and Nature, nature.com slash news. For more of Andy, thebuglepodcast.com. I'm Kerry Smith. See you in 2014.